most people nowadays in America have heard of the Inquisition and actually have a pretty good idea of what they think the Inquisition was. That most people sort of they know full well, so they think that the Inquisition was a time um, when you had these trials led by these brutal and fanatical churchmen um, who maimed and killed and tortured all um, under the authority of the Catholic Church. And this is an image that people that have little love for the Catholic Church are always willing to bring out very quickly. You see it, watch a debate between a Christian and a non-Christian. The two things, clubs they always bring out to try to beat the Christian over the head with, especially if they're Catholic, is or are the Crusades and the Inquisition. Um, last week we covered the Crusades. And like I said, if you weren't here, you can always go back and listen on our podcast. And so this week we'll be turning to the other club, the Inquisition. Now, in order to fully understand the Inquisition, that this, tonight we're going to go over sort of four main, or I, guess, I guess you could divide it as three or four main parts. And that is what most people think of with the Inquisition. They always think of something, particularly the Spanish Inquisition. And the Spanish Inquisition is fundamentally not some, I guess not fundamentally, but is there's a difference between the Spanish Inquisition and what was called, or is called commonly the Medieval Inquisition. And so in order, we're going to focus on this, get to the Spanish Inquisition, because that's what most people think of when they get an, um, their, when their image that they have of the Inquisition. They're always thinking of the Spanish Inquisition. But in order to properly understand the Inquisition, we're going to start by talking about the Medieval Inquisition. So when I say we're going to go through three or four parts, what I mean by that is we're going to start by talking about the Medieval Inquisition, and then from there, we're going to move to talking about the Spanish Inquisition. And then at the end, what I would like to do is go through the two most famous sort of cases before the Inquisition. Neither of them are in Spain. They're actually in Rome. Um, that is of Giordano Bruno and Galileo, um, which are usually the two cases that people try to bring up to, to attack the Catholic Church. So we will talk about those as well at the end. Now, um, in order to properly, like I said, to understand the Spanish Inquisition, you have to go back to the Medieval Inquisition. And whenever you are studying anything, whether it's scripture or a book or history, you always have to go back and start with the context, um, the, the general picture if you want to actually get an accurate image. So it's important to remember that the medieval world, and by the medieval world, it's sort of a a lot of the phrases we use to refer to the quote, the Middle Ages, the medieval world, they're, they're sort of biased phrases to begin with. But what I mean by the medieval world is the, the time when you got the knights with the swords and all the things that people mean by medieval. That, so we're going to be starting actually around in the 1100s. That the medieval world was not the modern world. That it was a very different worldview. People lived very different lifestyles. We have a tendency of, to, to practice what's called sort of presentism, that when we look at different times and different places to try to look through it through our current worldview and lens and judge them by the standards of today rather than the standards of the time. So, um, so for instance, there is a, the medieval world is very different. It's very medieval in, in the sense that you try living through the Black Death and then see how you view the world as opposed to now. So, um, 
So through that medieval worldview, which is very different than the modern one, that religion to them, to people living in the Middle Ages, wasn't something you just did on Sunday. It wasn't that well, you just go to Mass and there's your religious life and then you completely separate it from the rest of your life. Rather, religion permeated all aspects of life. It was important to the bedrock of science. It was the foundation of philosophy. It was... Um, what provided identity to the community. There's a reason why you didn't have to celebrate civic holidays. You had religious holidays. You, like the community, what bound them all together was their religion. And it, um, therefore, heresy, false teaching, when someone separates themselves from the Orthodox Catholic Church at the time, that, that is not just... Um, someone just spouting off some false ideas, that is when someone is preaching heresy, that they are actually attacking the very foundation of society, what holds everyone together, um, what holds, like I said, the foundation of the community, philosophy, everything. So that's why um, it was thought that a heretic not only endangered himself, he endangered and tore apart the whole fabric of community. Um, and it wasn't just the medieval Christians that thought this, that the idea of sort of universal religious toleration is a uniquely modern and uniquely Western idea, that every civilization throughout history has not practiced this idea, this new modern idea of religious toleration, that religion and society, that that's what they were intricately tied. This is true of the Roman Empire, it's true of Going back to the ancient Chinese, it's true of Islam, it was true of Middle Ages, um, sort of a universal idea. Now, now, the interesting thing about the completely backwards view of the Inquisition that most people have is that the Inquisition was not born out of this idea to crush diversity and people's um, opinions it rather, it were to oppress people into like this universal thought that actually the reason the Inquisition was founded was for a very simple reason, and it was founded to stop unjust executions, which is the um, people, when they hear that, they're like, wait, that's the exact opposite of what I've always heard, but that was it. It was created simply to stop unjust executions. And the reason is, going back to that idea of heresy tearing apart all of community, that it was part of every single civil code of laws in Europe at the time, that heresy was a crime against the state, that this actually goes back to the ancient Romans, that it, due to the code of Justinian, after even Roman become Christian, that heresy was a civil crime because it tore apart society, it questioned the authority of the, of the king whose God had vested with his authority, and therefore... It was a civil crime, and in fact, it was a capital offense in every single country in Europe. So, what happened, um, that like I said, the rulers who believed that their authority came from God, they had no patience with heretics. The common people had no patience with heretics either, because they thought that their false teachings were going to bring down divine wrath upon them, and so they didn't want heretics either, and therefore... When in the early Middle Ages, before 1184, when the Inquisition is going to start, that if someone was accused of heresy, they weren't brought to the church, 
they were brought to the local magistrate, they were brought to the local lord, and then just as if they had killed a pig or damaged a shrubbery, um, which was actually a capital offense in England, um, that just as if they had committed a civil crime, they were brought to the local magistrate, and then this unlearned guy who had no concept of theology would decide if they were a heretic or not, or the mob would decide, and as end result, they would usually get killed. So, the church thought, you know, um, these people are not properly discerning whether these people are actually heretics or not. Law and order is not prevailing um, properly. So, the church's response in 1184 under Pope Lucius III was to establish the First Inquisition. Now, um, so what this was is the Inquisition was actually started out of a need to provide fair trials for the people that were accused of being heretics. And it was actually based upon the most, on the ancient Roman law codes, and the Inquisitions are going to be examples of the best law practices in all of Europe. So that, um, that and the reason is that the church with the Inquisition, will, I'll get into a little more specific, but they wanted to actually provide the heretics a chance to actually give their side of the story and have a chance to actually defend themselves. They wanted them to actually be have the, the code of rule of law actually applied in a just manner so that you didn't have innocent people being killed. And the reason is, that, like, from, like I said, from the government's perspective, heretics are dangerous to society and just need to be done away with. From the church's perspective, yes, they're dangerous to people's souls, but they're also lost sheep. That this is the, the, the perspective that the church always took. That, that they are lost sheep and that they need to be given the opportunity to return to the flock. Um, to the opportunity to repent. The church is never, never says like, nope, you don't have the opportunity to repent. You just need to be killed. No, it's they need to be presented with the truth properly so that they, as a lost sheep, can come back. Um, like the church, as the shepherds, had the duty to go out and bring those sheep back to the fold. Um, so, because the church, first and foremost, was trying to save souls, including the souls of the heretic. Um, and so, the Inquisition, it actually provided a means of escape for the heretic, because before, if you're a heretic, you're brought to the king, the king says you're a heretic, he kills you. When the Inquisition starts with these courts, that when you're accused of heresy, you're brought before the Inquisition. And even if you are found to be a heretic, they give you the chance to repent and actually turn away from your heresy and not be killed. You have an escape valve that never existed before um, that you actually, if, you want, if they wanted to return to the truth, they could actually save their lives, which did not happen before. So the Inquisition saved countless lives. Now... And actually, one of the great things about the Inquisition is we have, and this is something that scholars there do not really debate about what the Inquisition was, if it was good, if it was bad, true, like, true um, academics. And the reason was, or that they, 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 there is not really a, an open debate, is because the Inquisition kept meticulous records of everything. They had like the earliest cases of court reporting, 
Um, I mean, actually, most of our legal system is descended from the Inquisition. And even our idea of an inquest comes from, it just is the same word as an Inquisition. Um, so they kept meticulous records, which still exist. So scholars have been able to go back. They can read exactly what happened. They know what happened. And there's, there's sort of a complete separation between the, the scholars that actually know what happened, the historians, and the public opinion of what people think happened, just like there is with the Crusades, but the two go completely um, past each other. So anyway, um, that most people that were brought before the Inquisition were acquitted or had their sentence suspended if the king had already suspended or had already given passed a sentence. Um, and the biggest complaint that the monarchs had about the Inquisition always was that they were too lenient. And if they were found guilty of grave error, they were given a chance to confess their sins, to do penance, and return to the body of Christ. Um, that they were given a second chance. Now, um, if, however, they um, determined that this person, if they refused to confess their sins and return to the flock, or if they said, oh yeah, we'll do that, we'll confess our sins, return to the flock, and then continued publicly preaching their heresy, like afterwards, so they weren't really sorry, what the Inquisition would do was they would excommunicate, which most people, now Catholics don't even understand what excommunicate means. The excommunicate simply says, you know what, you are persisting in your heresy in a public manner, you are, you've cast yourself out from the church, you are no longer part of the church, um, and so the church would just excommunicate them, and then the church had no more role past that. The church would excommunicate them, the end. However, the civil authority, it was a crime in all the countries of Europe to be excommunicated, and therefore, once they've been excommunicated, the civil authority would step in because they're no longer under the protection of the church, because it was the church that would be, was protecting them before, and they're the ones that would kill the heretics. Um, not the church. The church never, itself never burned anyone. Um, ex I was going to say, the only place where it can be a little confusing is in the papal states in Italy, where the pope is both the church and the civil authority at the same time. Um, so I guess in that case you could say they did. But then Italy, the pope was both the, the, the civil authority that ran central Italy, but also the head of the church. So as the Pope, he never had it, like the Papal States, the church never burned anyone, but the civil authority, which was also the church, um, did. Um, so anyway. Yeah, a little bit. But anyway. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, but the simple fact is the medieval Inquisition saved countless thousands of lives. And that's something actually we're... Um, going to even see the Spanish Inquisition is even going to save thousands of lives. Um, now, so it started in 1184, but it started to develop and be even more formalized, the Inquisition, to um, that by the 13th century, the Pope had put um, the, this new order, religious order, the Dominicans, for the most part, in charge of the Inquisition. And that's because the Dominicans had the most educate, the best educated priests in all of Europe. They were educated in the Roman law. They were educated in theology. 
And so they took over the running of the Inquisition for, in most places. And like I said before, that the courts created by the church and the Inquisitional courts were the best law, legal practices in all of Europe. Now, as the 14th century, the 1300s sort of came in, that there was something that happened in Europe, and that is that the authority of the Pope started to diminish because the medieval Inquisition was under the authority of the Pope. And as the authority of the Pope began to diminish, the authority of the monarchs, the kings of Europe, started to increase. So, more and more, the kings in their individual countries started taking over the running of the Inquisitions, taking that authority from the Pope. And the reason was that they thought they, they, they said, hey, we are Catholic, we are Christian, we care about the souls and well-being of our people, and we think we have a better, like, boots on the ground, understanding of what's going on in our country than the Pope, so we think we can handle it a little bit better. That's what they, their justification was. Now, um, and they also thought that the church was just a little too lenient in their um, dealing with the heretics. Now, the amazing thing is that despite all the prospect of abuse in that of the state running the Inquisitions, that for the most part, um, the monarchs of the Catholic countries actually did a very good job and that um, they did a good job of making sure that their Inquisitions remained both efficient as well as merciful. Um, it didn't just completely turn around as soon as the king started taking over. But as a result, instead of having the Inquisition, the medieval Inquisition, with only one, basically it's a bunch of courts in all the different countries, but only one system, all under the authority of the Pope, you end up with national Inquisitions. So you have like a French Inquisition, you have a Spanish Inquisition, you have a Roman Inquisition, that each country has their independent Inquisitions when the rise of the nation state and the authority of the king in the 1300s. So, that's the important development leading up to where the Spanish Inquisition comes from, why it's called the Spanish Inquisition, that national uh, modifier, not just the Inquisition. Let's see if my sound works. <laughs> All right. A little Monty Python. All right. Now, I didn't know if the sound would work or not. But anyway, um, so on to what most people think about that when they think of the Inquisition. That, and in, um, and, but even the Spanish Inquisition, it'll have a little bit of a rocky start, and we'll go into a little more of detail. But at its height, it also recognized, it was actually the model Inquisition at its height and represented the best organized and judicious court in Europe, um, like I said, with the Inquisition in general during the Middle Ages. Um, but when most people learn about the Spanish Inquisition, like I said, they're usually shocked to find out that they didn't barbecue people by the millions. Um, and, so, and like I said before, most people don't think of the Inquisition, they think of the Spanish Inquisition or more correctly, what they think of the myth of the Spanish Inquisition, which we're going to talk, get into where the, our understanding of the Spanish Inquisition came from, because it was part of a systematic propaganda campaign um, where history was rewritten um, give, to um, give us a picture of what the Spanish Inquisition was that was completely different than reality. Now, going back to that context idea, 
Because the Spanish Inquisition, it actually gets formed for, very, for different reasons than the medieval Inquisition. And it's going to be sort of a slightly unique thing. And the reason is, going back all the way into like the 8th century, the 700s, Spain had been conquered by the Muslims, and all except for the top left corner, and which had remained Christian. And from the, that top left corner, quickly started expanding, and you had um, a seven, or I guess it's more like an 800-year war between the Christians trying to reconquer Spain from the Muslims, and the Muslims trying to keep Spain. And it was a peninsula of constant warfare. Um, however, the borders were constantly going back and forth. Um, so the, so there might, one city might be Christian for a while, then it might be Muslim for another, controlled by the Muslims for the next 100 years, then controlled by the Christians for the next 50 years. So in practice, the average people, the Muslims and the Christians and the large Jewish population, and it wasn't that large, as in there was around 180,000 people in all of what we call Spain at the time, that they, the average people got along pretty well because they never know who was going to be in charge the next 50 years or the next while. So the average people got along pretty well. So you, there was actually even a word for it um, called conviv, con, convivencia. I'm probably not pronouncing that right in the Spanish speaker. Um, but anyway, um, but it basically was that idea of like the people just getting along, the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians in Spain. And which was a rarity in the Middle Ages. So, for instance, the Jews in Spain were actually treated a lot better than they were in the rest of Europe. That there is a truth that anti-Semitism has a long history in Europe. Um, that, for instance, all the Jews were expelled out of England in 1290. Um, they were expelled out of France in 1306. Uh, we learned about the Crusades last week, about... in the Germany, particularly in the Rhineland, that they were always happy to have an excuse to go around and slaughter the Jews and take their stuff. And when they were being expelled, when they were being mistreated in the other countries, where would they go? There's two places where they're always welcome, Spain and the Papal States. And so, um, so in, the Jews thrived in Spain in every aspect of society. They were even some of the king's... Um, top advisors, and this is important. Um, when this Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition is going to start, it's going to be in the late 1400s, which we'll get to in a second, the famous um, Ferdinand and Isabella, the ones that sent Christopher Columbus on his merry way, um, that actually united Spain into a country that some of their top advisors were Jews. Like, they had a very prominent place in Spain. Now, however, that anti-Semitism that is sort of universally true about the countries of Europe, did make its way into Spain in the late 1300s. So what happened was, this is to explain where the Inquisition in Spain comes from, that this mob um, understanding of and hatred of the Jews took over part of northeast Spain near Barcelona, and you had these mobs that were very jealous of all the wealth and the position that the Jewish population had. So they went around um, ransacking and telling all, them all that they could either be baptized or die. And so what happened was 
large portion of them were baptized. And then right after that, the new king of Aragon, which is just that region up in that northeastern region of Spain, he informed his people. First, he said, he said, you know, one, you need to stop. And he stopped the mistreatment. But then he also said, you know, forced baptisms don't count. Um, you people need to learn some basic theology. And he, then he told the Jews that, you know, you can go back to being Jews. Those don't count. It's done. However, out of that around, around 90,000 of them that became Christian, only a couple thousand of them went back to being Jews. Most of them stayed Christian. And there's been debate over why that is. Um, some have thought, well, they were afraid of further mistreatment in, in the future, um, that they were worried that they, well, that they had abandoned Judaism and that they, didn't, that they had sort of turned away from their religion and God, and so they felt too ashamed to go back. Um, whatever the reason, most of them stayed Christian. Now, as time went on, all of these converts who were called the conversos, which just means converts in Spanish, that they settled into their new religion, they had children, they baptized them as Christians, and they actually spent enough time in the Catholic Church, they actually started to come to believe the truths being taught to them, and even if ones that had joined not by necessarily by choice, their children became good Catholics. Um, however, they were very proud of their Jewish heritage, and they still wanted to maintain their Jewish culture. So they were sort of this weird um, middle way in that they, they ate and dressed like Jews, lived in the Jewish quarters, but they were Catholic. So the old Catholics didn't like them because they thought that they were too Jewish, and the Jews didn't like them because they thought they were too Christian. And, but actually, and one of the effects, though, is they actually brought in massive amounts of converts from the Jewish quarter into Christianity because they were constantly interacting with the Jews and preaching the gospel. Now, however, when I said those two sides didn't like them, they had a lot of enemies. And part of it was they worked very hard and they got very wealthy. They um, got a lot of positions of authority. They even had converso bishops. And they were very proud of their Jewish heritage, which they at sometimes very non-politely non flaunted. Like there was a famous um, Bishop of Burgos who was a converso. And whenever he prayed the Hail Mary, he would always say, um, Holy Mary, Mother of God, and my blood relative, pray for us sinners. Um, so, there was, um, so there was a lot of backlash against this group. Um, and so a lot of people resented their success and their arrogance. And so anyway, that anti that semi, I guess it wasn't really anti-Semitism because it wasn't against the actual Jews. It was against these conversos that a lot, those two sides, the Jews that didn't like them for being too Christian and the Christians that thought they were too Jewish, started publishing all these tracts basically attacking them. And they were accusing them left and right of basically being secret Jews, that they weren't real Christians. They were a Jewish plot to basically try to ruin Christianity. And this started gaining traction. The new king of Spain and this is in the late 1400s, Ferdinand, he thought it was kind of ridiculous because some of his best friends were conversos. But as time went on, he kept getting told more and more, hey, there is this terrible plot, these conversos, these secret Jews are trying to ruin the church, and it's your obligation as the king to try to root it out. 
So, against his better judgment, at first, he said, fine, um, we'll, we'll investigate this. And so, thus begun, began the Spanish Inquisition. Ferdinand formed it, and they were to investigate these um, conversos, and some of them were second, third generation Christians, and, and see if they were really Christians or if they were still secret Jews. Um, now, the problem is, those conversos had a lot of enemies, so right away, they started getting accused and left and right of being secret Jews by their Christian enemies and their Jewish enemies. Left and right, they, the accusations started flying. And so they'd go from town to town, and then accusations would just start pouring in and just confirmed the, inqui the inquisitors, who for the most part were kind of sincere, it confirmed them in their fear that, hey, there is this giant plot, because look at all these people that are accusing them left and right and it started to snowball out of control. Um, now, um, so it started getting more and more. As more and more accusations started coming, they started appointing more and more inquisitors. They started going more and more places. And like it's, the old Christians had nothing to fear because it was only focused on those conversos. The Jews, despite popular, um, popular idea, um, going back and think like Mel, Bro I think it's it Mel Brooks, that his history of the world, where he has the Inquisition and the Jews being persecuted by the Inquisition in Spain. No, the Jews were never persecuted. It was only the conversos. Um, but anyway, um, so anyway, there was plenty of abuse and plenty of confusion in the first around 10 to 15 years, and there was a few well-publicized burnings, um, and more and more people were being denounced. And so finally, um, the Pope, seeing this hysteria going on in Spain, tried to step in and put a stop to it. Um, you had Pope Sixtus IV. He actually wrote to the bishops of Spain, and he said... In Aragon, Valencia, Mallorca, and Catalonia, the Inquisition has for some time been moved, not by zeal for the faith and salvation of souls, but for lust for wealth. Many true and faithful Christians on the testimony of enemies, rivals, slaves, and other lower and even less proper persons have, without any legitimate proof, been thrust into secular prisons, tortured and condemned as relapsed heretics, deprived of their goods and property, and handed over to the secular arm to be executed to the peril of souls, setting a pernicious example and causing disgust to many. And so the, the Pope ordered all the bishops of Spain to step in and stop the practice, and, but the authority of the Pope was not what it had been before, and Ferdinand just got angry, and he actually he had been told that those, the conversos, they had been bribing officials left and right. And so when the letter came, Ferdinand's worst fear had happened. The conversos, they had gotten to the Pope and even bribed him. Um, so it did not stop. Um, now, um, so, but that, and that was the end of the papacy having any role in the Spanish Inquisition. He tried to stop it. it he did not. Um, it was entirely an arm of the Spanish government. It was not run by the Catholic Church. Now, um, and even 
something like it's like 95% of the people that even worked for the Inquisition in Spain were government employees. Um, but um, the, it lasted, like I said, this part lasted around 15 years. And this is the worst time of the Spanish Inquisition. Um, millions of people, however, were not roasted um, in 15 years that they, around 2,000, around 2,000 conversos were executed in Spain, um, which sounds like a lot, but you compare that to anywhere else in Europe, and even under this worst period, less people were executed during that time period in Spain than in any other country in Europe. Because remember, like I said, this is the era of, there were something like 500 different capital crimes in England alone, including damaging a shrubbery in a public garden. That, that was the era. Um, however, and like the, 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 the head of the Inquisition during these 15 years was the infamous Torquemada, who, um, who had a lot of zeal, but he was not, not a ton of restraint. But after those 15 years, Torquemada was removed, and they actually put someone competent in, his, in charge instead, and that is um, Cardinal Francisco Jimenez, um, who is actually going to more than probably more than anyone else be responsible for the fact that Spain is now a Catholic or was a state a Catholic country and didn't become Protestant because of the reforms that he took um, that he put on the Inquisition and on Spain in general. Now, um, Cardinal Jimenez, he gutted the Inquisition. He um, that all of the places where they were not following good Roman legal practice, they fixed, they gave the, like I said, the heretics the chance to um, actually, what's the phrase? No, I was going to say, well, they had the chance to recant before. Um, defend themselves. Um, that's what I'm looking for. They had the chance to defend themselves. They had chance to actually have legal counsel. They, he, they added all of these reforms. He brought in the Dominicans again to put them, there had been some involved before, but not in a systematic way to actually over, put, provide theological oversight. So in the next 350 years of the Spanish Inquisition, it lasts for another 350 years, only 2,000 more people are killed. So 2,000 first 15 years, 2,000 in the next 350 years. Um, and you compare that, so in its total, the Spanish Inquisition, 4,000 people were executed. You can compare that to the other parts of Europe, such as in Protestant Germany during their witch trials at the same time, when around 60,000 people were killed um, in the hysteria. And one of the amazing things about the Spanish Inquisition is that it actually stopped the hysteria of the 16th century and 17th century witch trials that started the, the fear of witches that had spread all over Europe at the time, particularly up in Germany, which I'm sure there were some witches, but I'm also um, sure that a lot of them weren't, that the hysteria of the witch trials got stopped at the gates when it got to Spain and actually the, to the papal states as well, and it was stopped by the Inquisition. That as soon as the hysteria started to come, the Inquisitors went to go meet it, they went to go investigate, and they were um, found no evidence for these witches' sabbaths, for these baby roastings. They, there was uh, people confessing of witchcraft, amazingly were not able to fly through keyholes, and so they said this is ridiculous, 
And so the hysteria of the witch trials never made it into Spain um, or Italy, or I guess the Roman part, the part of Italy that the Inquisition in Rome was in charge of. So, yeah. But so the ironic thing is nowadays the word Inquisition means the same thing as witch trial when actually the Inquisition was the antidote to the witch trial. Um, but now, I forgot to add a slide. Oh, well, I'll just be on this slide extra long. All right, there's a little propaganda um, picture from the time that we'll get to in a second. Oh, that was the tamer one. All right, now, anyway, what about, like, the, for instance, the famous torture chambers of Spain, the dungeons, all that, that as far as prisons go, the Spanish Inquisition actually had the best prisons in Europe. Um, that there's actually examples of criminals in Spain purposely going out and trying, or trying to blaspheme in prison to get transferred to the Inquisition prisons um, because they were so much better than the state prisons, even though the Inquisition was like sort of half run by the state at the time. Um, but the Inquisition court prisons, they were a lot nicer. Um, and as far as torture, that it's important to remember that all courts in Europe allowed for torture, every single country. But the difference is it was not routine with the Inquisition. And only around 2% of the cases were there actually any torture applied. And they had very specific rules for torture. And, that, and by torture, usually what they would do is tie the person's hands behind their back and lift them up off the ground. And the longest that they could apply any torture was for 15 minutes. They could do it one time. And then very rarely they would do it a second time, and they were never allowed to do it a third time. Um, and then, um, but like I said, nowadays it's shocked. But compared to the time, it was um, practically enlightened compared to places like England or France or anywhere else. Um, and... Um, like I said, so the inescapable conclusion is the Spanish Inquisition was, their court, court was more, quote-unquote, like I said, enlightened, um, better legal practices than most other places in Europe. So where did our completely backwards understanding of the Inquisition come from? And that is that by the 16th century, the middle of the 1500s, um, that, which is shortly after 1517, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, that Spain had become the most powerful country in all of Europe, thanks to Christopher Columbus and all that going on, going over to America and bringing back gold, etc. And anyway, that the Spain was very much countering, trying to counter um, the Protestants who had, a, who viewed Spain as. Um, their great enemy, and the Protestants couldn't defeat Spain on the battlefield, so they turned to the propaganda field. And so what happened was that there was a famous black legend, which was these basically propaganda tracts that were forged, in, particularly in the Netherlands, where you had large groups of Protestants who were actually ruled by the, ruled by the Spanish. And they started talking, make, making up stories of all of these Spanish persecutions. This is actually one of the other, the third club that people always attack the Catholic Church is for is Spain's treatment of the natives in the Americas at the time. 
But one thing that's important to remember is that the conquistadors that came to the Americas, yes, they did not always behave very well, but a lot of what we think happened is actually completely made up as part of these black legends. Um, and so also, the stories of the Spanish Inquisition were completely made up in these propaganda tracks as well with great illustrations such as the Spanish, there you go, roasting babies and doing awful things. Um, now, so they, cost, they cast opulent Spain as like this place of darkness and ignorance and evil. Now, the reason, one of the reasons why they were doing this is not only to make Spain look bad, but also just to help Protestantism out in general. And the reason was, Protestantism needed some history. And um, from the beginning of the Reformation on, that when Catholics and Protestants would engage in debate, um, the Protestants always had a really hard time explaining the fact that Protestant, Protestantism never existed for 1,500 years, that it was something new. So the Catholic and the Protestant would argue, and the Catholic would say, so you're saying that no Christian got anything right for 1,500 years, and then all of a sudden Martin Luther just had a eureka moment, and God told him what was right, and so every other Christian that had come before had been completely wrong, because there was no Protestant churches before the Reformation. They did not exist for 1,500 years. This is a real weak point in the Protestant argument, so they had to come up with an answer. So their answer was, um, they, they argued, you know what, they said, our church really was the church created by Christ. But just as the Roman Empire persecuted the early church, the Catholic church, which is the successor of the Roman Empire, they persecuted the real church as well. And so what they started doing was they started basically tracing, trying to trace this false lineage of saying like, and they actually went back to all these heretics that were burnt and killed by the church throughout its history, um, or that the church, like I said, that condemned by the church, killed by the state. But they pointed to all these heretics and said, see, these were examples of the true church, and the Catholic church was persecuting them. Um, this is, if you ever heard this, uh, the idea, the Baptist idea of like uh, the trail of blood, like there's this, this is even a popular idea still in in like Baptist Greenville, is this idea that Baptist church has always been around and that they've just been underground, persecuted by the Catholic church for now for 2,000 years and, or until the Reformation when they were able to come, come out of um, the dungeon, I guess. And um, so this is what famously the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs in England, what it tried to do, it tried to create this Protestant blood lineage and so if you re actually, you can go to Barnes & Noble and get the Fox's Book of Martyrs and look through it. And it starts off, the first Protestants in the book are the Albigensian heretics in southern France who denied the divinity of Christ, um, original sin, but they conveniently made it into the book as because they were killed by the Catholic Church or condemned by the Catholic Church. Now, um, so what's the best example of the church condemning people, this boogeyman of oppression at the time, Spain and the Spanish Inquisition. So that's why it became the target of all of their propaganda to try to show, like, see, look, this is what the church does. They persecute the true Christians, um, therefore um, trying to give legitimacy to the religion. So... Spanish Inquisition, 
It lasts around 350 years, and it started to fade. And the reason why is because Spain started to fade. That, I guess, to go back to the Spanish Armada, Spanish was bankrupt. Spain was bankrupt, that their power started to go way down as England started to go up. And so by the time you get to the 17th centuries, or 17th century, there's only one, um, I guess unless you go BC maybe, um, that you had the new ideas of the quote-unquote enlightenment and the ideas of religious toleration that started to take over Europe. So that, that became the new, the new thing in all the coffee houses and salons of Europe, salons where people would meet together and talk, not get their hair get their hair did, um, that, the, um, that the new thing was religious toleration coming from, you had, this is the time when you started to have atheism for the first time, where you had people that you don't believe in God, then Christians, Protestant, Catholic, they're both equally wrong. How can you say that one's right and another's wrong? Therefore, you just need to tolerate them both. Um, that all religion is superstition, and therefore you can't say one's right and the others are wrong. So this idea of toleration started to take hold, and Spain was laughed at by the Enlightenment. Um, the people of Spain loved their Inquisition. They didn't want to get rid of it. The common people thought it was great. It stopped Protestantism at the border. Protestantism never really made it too much into Spain. Um, but, like I said, Spain became irrelevant in the history of Europe. So did the Spanish Inquisition until it's finally done away with. Um, now, poor Spain is still kind of irrelevant. Now, um, any questions about the Spanish Inquisition before we move on to Bruno and Galileo? Yes? Yes. There's all sorts of heresies. Um, some of them, some of them are like professors and they teach false idea of, like, I mean, you can name the heresy, like of saying that Christ is, I mean, some of the classic ones is, I mean, there's a, no, every heresy usually comes to sort of three categories. That there's sort of, there's three main mysteries of the faith. That Christ is fully God and fully man. 100% each, 200%, how that is true, it's above and beyond reason. We can't fully understand it. He's both and, God and man. God is completely three and completely one um, at the same time. And that the other is that God's complete grace, that nothing can happen outside of God's divine providence, that we cannot do anything good without God's grace, yet we have free will at the same time. So every single heresy throughout history has been part of one of those three categories where someone will have struggled with that both and idea and they'll focus on one of the two to the exclusion of the other. So you look at the, every heresy, it's usually something like Christ is more completely God, but he only appears to be a man. Or he's a man and not really fully God. He's maybe just like a super angel. Or you have God's three um, persons, but, or, but not completely one. He's actually like three gods. Or you have that God is, okay, there's one God, but instead of three persons, God just like changes different form every time. <laughs> kind of like water can sometimes be like ice, mist, water, depending on the form, but it's only one thing. They'll say that about God. So you name it, people have thought it. Um, because those truths, like it is hard to hold things in opposition. 
Um, and that's why some of the heresies throughout history combine all of them together, like Islam. But anyway, which is a combination of denying all three of those mysteries. Now, any questions before we move on to Bruno? Um, let's be the I'm trying to remember the Spanish Armada was fifteen eighty eight, I believe. Right? Okay. Um and so Spain started to go downhill from then. And by the time you get into the seventeen hundreds, Spain is no more. So it's three hundred and fifty years from the end of the fourteen hundreds. So it lasted till the beginning of the eighteen hundreds. Actually I think it stopped when Napoleon conquered Spain. Is I think when they did away with the Inquisition, because that's when they did away with the monarchy, because when he conquered Spain. Did the Spanish Inquisition actually really torture sure. heretics? Like, really, really bad? Not really, really. Like, well, I mean, it's, yeah, I don't yeah. want to be left up by my arms. Um, but for 15 minutes, um, I guess maybe they're early waterboarding. No. Um, <laughs> so any more questions before we move to Bruno and Galileo? All right. All right. So now to the two most famous victims of the Inquisition. You know, one of them only one of them actually dies. The other one lives at a villa. I mean, in Italy for the rest of his life. If we only all could be so lucky. All right. Now, so anyway, start with Giordano Bruno, who would be completely irrelevant because he was completely irrelevant at the time, except for the fact that 300 years after his death, people started resurrected him, not literally, his memory, rewrote his story, and made him into something that he wasn't. So he's actually, he made it into pop culture recently, which I don't know if you, any of you have seen the Fox and National Geographic sort of recasting of Carl Sagan's Cosmos series that's been on Primetime and Fox, and their very first episode, they had a segment on Bruno, and how he was, quote, they, in the, the video, if I knew how to put a video into my PowerPoint, I would have, but I don't know how to put YouTube into it. Um, but they even called him, like, this martyr for science um, in the video. And they had, this, they had this view of the church coming in sinisterly and attacking him. And it had no basis in reality. But people nowadays, they think of Bruno as this martyr for science, an example of how the Catholic Church hates science and reason, and is just this dark superstition. So, um, in his tale, which we'll go briefly through, is a great example of just like the Crusades, we've had the urban legend made about the Catholic Church, the Inquisition, there's the urban legend of Bruno. So, Bruno was lived in the 1500s, born in 1548 in Italy. Um, at the age of 18, he was already a heretic, um, denying the divinity of Christ and the Trinity, as well as the real presence in the Eucharist. However, he kept those opinions to himself and was ordained a Dominican priest six years later. Um, and so, at age of 24, becomes a Dominican, um, and he started coming up with this bizarre mishmash of ideas in his philosophy that were a mix of like ancient um, Platonism. They had a little Protestant theology in there. He had some Hebrew mysticism. He had some Egyptian occultism. Um, 
and he had his own bizarre brand of pantheism, and he sort of put them all together and got this Brunoism, which you can't really um, def- entirely define. So his main idea was that he believed that God had created an infinite amount of universes um, and was always creating universes because he thought that God needed the universe and needed to keep creating just as much more than actually people needed God. God needed people in the universe. And he even thought, so he thought there's an infinite amount of universes out in outer space, these infinite little tiny universes. And so this is the only way that any idea of him having anything to do with modern science has come up was that people said, oh, yeah, well, we believe that, or we know, I guess now that the, we, that matter is made up of little molecules and atoms and like small ideas, that he kind of believed that there was these little small things too, even though he never explained it scientifically. So that's kind of scientific, so we'll make him into a scientist. Um, but um, he didn't try to explain anything scientifically, um, and frankly, the reason a lot, of, a lot of his beliefs sound like mumbo-jumbo is they are mumbo-jumbo. Nobody at the time took him particularly seriously. And actually, even after his death, nobody read him. And the people that did, nobody understood him. Um, and the only reason that he had any fame at the time was he actually had some really good um, mnemonic devices where he had some tricks for memory that sort of got him fame for like teaching people how to remember stuff. And, um, but anyway, the, the way that, the other way that he gets cast back, like such as the show Cosmos as a smarter for science is, is that like Copernicus, we'll talk about in a little bit, he believed that the earth revolved around the sun. He did not like Copernicus. He thought, Copernicus was too rigid in his thinking, wasn't free thinking enough. Um, and so he, he didn't, Bruno never did a real science. He just thought that the earth revolved around the sun. How the amazing thing is, though, he's never going to get condemned for thinking that the earth revolves around the sun. It never comes into any of the trouble he gets into with the church. That's just sort of a side issue. So anyway, he was a Dominican for 10 years. And then realizing that he had been teaching heresy left and right, and seeing the way the wind was blowing, he decide, decided, you know, it was probably a good idea to leave Catholic Italy. And also, I don't like being a Dominican anymore. So he decided to leave the Dominican order, leave the priesthood, and he fled Italy and went to go live in Geneva, the town of city of John Calvin over in Switzerland. Because he thought for a second, he thought, you know, I think I'm Calvinist. So he went to Geneva and became a Calvinist. However, in less than a, no, in, uh, yeah, in, I don't know how long he was there, but, but very shortly afterwards, he managed to insult the leaders of Geneva, which was the Protestant police state at the time, and easy to run afoul, particularly someone such as Bruno. And so he got, after have, actually, I forgot to mention, he got excommunicated by the Catholic Church. Then he got excommunicated by the Calvinists, so he fled Geneva, now that he's been excommunicated twice by the Catholics and the Calvinists. He went to Paris, where he actually worked for the king there for a little bit, teaching him those memory tricks. But then there was a new king who was actually persecuting Calvinists and heretics, the Huguenots in France, 
and he decided that, you know, Paris might not be a good place for an excommunicated ex-Dominican. Maybe he needed to get out of here. So he fled to Queen Elizabeth's England, where he, um, in a, what's it called? In a rare example of, oh, I forgot, sorry, to go back. I forgot to mention the fact while in Paris, he had completely abandoned his vows of, he had already, since he had already abandoned his vows of obedience, that's where he'd abandoned his vows, of, other vows as well, including chastity, and started pursuing women with, good Shakespearean reference, with a Falstaffian gusto. Um, and however, he goes to England, he, where he went to Oxford, and the, his first time in Oxford, he was there, his first trip, he had a big debate, and he got laughed off the stage. And so he said, well, enough of England. And so he went to Germany to become a Lutheran. And he started teaching at a Lutheran college there before he got excommunicated by the Lutherans. <laughs> and so he went back to Italy for some reason, to the city of Venice, where he was teaching his memory tricks again to a nobleman living in Venice, even though they didn't actually have real nobles in Venice. But that's another story. Um, but anyway, he's teaching his memory tricks to a rich guy in Venice. But um, thanks to Bruno's unseemly attention towards the guy's wife, the guy condemned or turned Bruno over to the Inquisition in Venice. And they brought him up on trial. Um, and so you have this renegade priest who had abandoned his vows, who had become a priest despite the fact he didn't believe in God um, or divinity of Christ. Um, and had been teaching heresy and blasphemy for years. So, um, even that being said, um, while it actually took a little while for them to condemn him in Venice, but as the court was working in Venice, Rome sent a messenger asking for his extradition to be sent to Rome, and Venice was all too happy to get rid of him, even though they usually didn't. So he was sent to Rome, and showing the slow workings of the Inquisition and how they gave everybody fair trials, even Bruno, that his trial lasted seven years. Um, they gave seven years of allowing him to, um, to talk, to hear him out. At first, he tried to say, oh, I was just joking about all of this, and I didn't really mean it, and they were not that stupid, and they, until he quickly said, you know what, I wasn't joking, and he became very obstinate, and he said, you don't really have any authority over me anyway. So finally, they condemned him, they turned him over to the state, and he was burnt at the stake in 1600. Now, thus would have ended the sad affair of Giordano Bruno as Cardinal Sedano, the former Secretary of State, said in 2000. Um, it was a sad affair. That's really the best that can be said of it. Um, and he died not as a scientist, not for any scientific beliefs, not because he had believed in the Copernican system, which the church hadn't even condemned at the time when he lived, um, but because of the fact he was an obstinate, excommunicated heretic and um, who, had who had embraced every passing, passing fancy from reincarnation to divinization. Um, and so anyway, he passed out of history for 300 years. Nobody cared about Bruno. Um, until the late 1800s when Italy was becoming a country and there was huge waves of anti-clericalism because all these new 
nationalists in Italy saw the Pope standing in the way of nationalism and the church standing in the way. So the, there was a bunch of anti-clerical um, movements going on in Italy. So when Italy was founded by conquering the Papal States and eventually conquering Rome itself from the Pope, that what had happened was the anti-clericalism continued. And so finally you had all these anti-Catholic students who some, one of them read about Bruno in some history book somewhere, and even, even though none of them had ever read Bruno, and other ones, when they tried to read him, it didn't make any sense, they decided, hey, the church condemned this guy, let's build a statue of him in Rome in the Campo de Fiore, where he was burned, as basically a way of sticking it to the Pope. They didn't have any money, so they started asking for donations from every anti-Catholic in Europe, and so the donations flowed in, even from the likes of Victor Hugo, and they put up the statue. They had a giant ceremony with 2,000 people where they announced that the date of religion of reason is now established. And within a generation, Italy was fascist. Now, um, so thus ended Bruno. And he was reinvented as this martyr of science. All right, going kind of quick. All right. Oh, that was supposed to be that slide. That's from the fox, where at the end they try to get him to repent and he turns away with an obstinate look from Jesus. All right. Yes, sir. Two questions. One, did they have telescopes in, that, in Bruno's era? And no. Wasn't he obviously right about the universe? Sure. Yeah. But that didn't have anything to do with any of, it, any of the reasons he went before the Inquisition. They never even talked about that. Um, people, well, he wasn't right about the infinite amount of universes. He was only right about the sun going around the earth, earth, but, I mean, the earth going around the sun. But frankly, that actually went all the way back to Pythagoras, who believed that too. Um, that people had thought that for a long time. But the problem is, and this is something we're going to get into now, is that the science of the day didn't support um, the heliocentric theory of the universe. The science of the day was actually more supported the geocentric as well as common sense. Um, that nobody proved the heliocentric theory until um, Johannes Kepler late, later on, even at post Galileo. And this actually was going to get Galileo into trouble, is he never proved anything. Now, um, all right, on to Galileo. So, Galileo starts with Copernicus. That people, and this has this idea, you learn this in school, the geocentric theory of the universe, or solar system, not the universe, and the heliocentric. Does the earth revolve around the sun, or does the sun revolve around the earth? That up until this time, people, most people throughout Europe had adopted the Aristotelian view that the earth is at the center, then the planets and the sun move in perfect circles, and the stars are fixed. That is how they viewed the world. That is the, actually the data that had been gathered for 2,000 years had confirmed that, as well as common sense and scripture. That was the common accepted view of science by everyone in Europe. There was a few people here and there that thought, no, the sun was the center. Copernicus, who was uh, um, a Polish... And actually, interesting fact, he taught at the same university that John Paul II actually attended. Um, was a Pol he was a Polish um, 
he wasn't a priest. He was um, in minor orders. Um, he was a canon, though. He, he basically was like a, a subdeacon, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, but, and an amateur scientist. And anyway, he um, try, came, he's the one that's given the credit usually for this idea of the sun being at the center of the earth, I mean, of the solar system. He did not publish on it. His fellow priests and other people tried to get him to, but he didn't want to be laughed out of the conversation because he knew that his work, he didn't have enough evidence for it and that it wouldn't pass the peer review process of the day. So it was, his work was only published posthumously after he was dead, in case someone in the front doesn't know what that means. And anyway, um, you knew what that meant, didn't you? All right, you need to shake your head and pretend. All right, so anyway, then comes Galileo. That Galileo was a little bit after Bruno um, when he lived, and oh, I forgot to put the exact date. Well, he's in the, Bruno died in 1600. Galileo invents his telescope in 1616, so it was just slightly after. So anyway, Galileo became convinced of Copernicus's um, theory, um, despite it not having scientific evidence behind it. Actually, at around the same time, Johann Kepler became convinced of it well, as well. Neither of them had um, good proof. And um, Galileo, his, um, he's going to be a very complex person who's going to be a brilliant, sci who's a brilliant scientist, but he also had an incredible ego that thought himself smarter than everybody, including, at the time, the greatest astronomer of the age, Tycho Brahe, up in Denmark, um, who, as an interesting side note, had a metal nose um, because his nose had gotten... He's a very... If you ever want to read the most interesting biography in the world, look up anything on Tycho Brahe with his metal nose and his pet reindeer, who finally died after falling down a flight of stairs after drinking too much beer. Um, now, and was the wealthiest man in all of Europe. Now, anyway, um, but anyway, he was, had, was an avid um, geocentric theory of the universe, um, like advocate, the most famous astronomer in Europe, the, the, the papacy, they had all sorts of, the Jesuits ran um, observatories as well, and the, 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 the body of evidence was on the side of the geocentric theory. Interestingly, most people don't know this today, but the Vatican still has observatories and is still um, part of, um, involved in science and astronomy, that there's observatory at the Vatican, or if you go to Arizona, where the most famous observatories in the United States at Kitt Peak, where the they have, the University of Arizona has an observatory on Kitt Peak, and the Vatican does as well. Um, but anyway... Um, so, Galileo convinced, convinced Copernican. Um, and in 1610, try to speed up a little bit, he invented his telescope, showing his brilliance. He did not, the first person to come up with the telescope, he heard about someone in Northern Europe coming up with the telescope, and in one night of sitting and thinking about how the guy must have done it, he invented his own. Like, so he's a smart guy. Um, but, and he started finding things with, his telescope that did break some holes in that Aristotelian understanding of the universe, like that the fact the stars are actually moving, um, seeing that they're not perfect orbs, the planets, seeing like the craters in the moon, stuff that you couldn't see before. Um, and 
They were, his findings were warmly received by the Vatican and Pope Paul V. And however, instead of, he got a little bit of evidence that helped justify his Copernican theory, but not enough to prove it. However, instead of continuing to actually do science and investigate, he decided that he thought he had enough to completely prove it, and he was just going to go on the offensive and dedicate the rest of his life to convincing people that the, that the heliocentric theory is the right one. So, um, in his effort to cram Copernicanism down the throat of all of his fellow scientists, though, he's going to completely get rid of any goodwill that anybody had to him, because even though he's going to be right in the end, he's going to be so obnoxious in how he goes about it that nobody's going to like him whether, from the other scientists to the church. So, the church actually at first graciously offered to consider the Copernican, Copernican model. Um, they said it as a reasonable hypothesis that they were perfectly fine with him advocating it as long as he advocated it as a hypothesis rather than as proven fact. Because of the fact, because it was not proven fact. It's kind of like, um, but I was going to say, it's kind of like, say, like global warming today. Like, it's a hypothesis. There is no proof. It's not a proven fact. There's conjecture. But he wanted to get rid of the whole scientific method and just accept it as proven fact because he's smarter than everyone else and they should accept his word on it. Um, rather than actually following the rigorous, scientific um, process. So um, he never, however, actually came up with any more evidence to support his theory. And so he's just started left and right picking fights with other scientists, arguing not that it was a hypothesis, but this is a proven fact and any dummy should be able to see so. Now, um, where he gets into trouble like is one, not arguing that's a hypothesis, but arguing that's proven fact, but when he ventures from science into theology. And the reason is that the Bible does have some passages which make it sound as if the earth is at the center of the solar system, when it talks about the sun standing still in Joshua, um, for instance. Um, and it was, so the church how they read the Bible at the time, because they didn't have, they didn't have any reason to um, not take those passages literally yet, um, that they um, were not, until it was proven, they weren't just going to re change their reading of Scripture. So what he starts saying, well, you know what? Like, this is, this is a proven fact, even though it's not, and here's how you can reread re the Bible. So he gave the church, he said, you know, here's a better way to read the Bible. But the problem was how he told the church to read the Bible was heretical. He said, you know, like, it's a Bible, it's all like allegory anyway. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not being literal pretty much anywhere. And the church stepped back and said, like, excuse me, there's a lot of hubris from someone who has no training in theology to start telling the church how, church how to read the Bible. So he was brought up before the Roman Inquisition, who mercifully acquitted him twice. They said, no. Like, just stop talking. You need to stop talking about the Bible, um, but you can go back to your science and just stay out of things you don't know about. Now, finally, he kept coming back. He kept doing the same thing again, though, and he kept 
um, against the church's wishes, saying it's proven fact, not a hypothesis. So, so finally, he was brought once again before the Roman Inquisition, who at the time was led by St. Um, Robert Bellarmine, um, the famous Jesuit. And Robert Bellarmine basically told him at this time, all right, you need to either put up or shut up. Either provide the evidence that proves this system or, or just stop talking about it because you're not listening to us and you're trying, continually saying that this is proven fact when it's not. Um, and so, and also stop talking about scripture. And anyway, his response though was, um, he came up with some theories that he thought proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, so it's such as he argued that the ocean tides are caused by the spinning of the earth, which the scientists at the time laughed at and said, no, that's not true, and it's not true. Um, and even his own supporters said, no, that's kind of a silly argument. You need to stop. Um, and however, he persisted. And he, this time he came back to Rome again, started doing the same thing all over again. And because the, there was a new pope, the new pope said, you know, take it up w with the Inquisition. Um, and once again, the Inquisition told him to stop talking about, they said, you know what, you just need to stop talking about the Copernican theory. You can't control yourself. Just, you're not allowed to talk about it anymore. And even though the church had never actually condemned the Copernican theory at the time, um, and actually the church never condemned the Copernican theory as anything heretical, um, is they only ever said it wasn't a proven fact at the time, and they weren't going to change their interpretation of Scripture until it was proven. So finally, however, his best friend became Pope. And he's like, yes, my moment has come. I can finally um, teach what I want to teach and argue what I want to argue. So he came to the Pope, his friend, and he tried to make his arguments to the Pope using his silly tides argument. The Pope was actually a very knowledgeable fellow. He argued against him and told him why it was a silly argument. Though that being said, the Pope's argument wasn't much better. It was pretty silly too. But he said, Copernicus, he said, you know what, fine, you can talk about the Copernicanism, Copernicanism again as long as you prevent, present it as a hypothesis and it doesn't appear that you're advocating one way over the other. So he actually let him publish his most famous work called his Dialogue, where he has three fig figures arguing about their models of the solar system. However, his, um, you have the three characters. You have Salviati, the Copernican. Um, you have an undecided guy as well. And then you also have the, the uh, Ptolemy is the one who had, came up with the geocentric theory. So the Ptolemaic system, the, the geocentric, the Earth at the center of the solar system idea. You had that character whose name was Simplicio, the simpleton. And he, he put all of the same arguments word for word that the Pope made into that character's mouth, which was not a good idea. The Pope was not amused. And so, finally, Galileo, as an old man, he's not an old man in that picture, but whatever. Um, the, I guess that's the limit of Google images. Um, as an old man, was brought back before the Inquisition. And he was treated actually very well. He had his um, own luxurious apartment at the Vatican with his own private valet. Um, sounds like something from Downton Abbey, which, I mean, 
who wouldn't want their own private valet overlooking the Vatican Gardens. Um, and anyway, and he tried a peculiar, ta- peculiar tactic in his trial this time, and he argued that he was never a Copernican to begin with, and that, um, that he tried to argue that he had never argued this, um, that, uh, that it, that's not what he meant. Um, so sorry, the church was not, to be, like with Bruno, was not um, convinced by this fact, and so they condemned him, not of heresy, but as being vehemently suspected of heresy. Meaning, we can't prove that you're a heretic, but we suspect you're a heretic, um, and besides that, you're just kind of obnoxious. So, um, he was condemned. He was not sentenced to death. He was told to renounce his theory and go live out the rest of his days on a pleasant country estate near Florence. Like I said, if only we all could be so lucky. Um, um, however, his exile, um, I guess, did do him some good, and he actually continued to do scientific experiments. The church even let him still publish, just was sort of a wink and a nod. They didn't, um, he actually, his, most fa- his, other, his greatest work, um, his discourses on two scientists, two sciences, he published after he's in his house arrest. Um, I guess it's kind of like when, I mean, his house arrest sounds around as bad as Barry Bonds' house arrest years ago in his 14,000 square foot mansion. Um, but anyway, so he finally died at the ripe old age of 77 in 1642. And as the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead wrote, in a generation which saw the 30 years war and remembered Alva in the Netherlands, the worst that happened to men of science was that Galileo suffered an honorable detention and a mild reproof before dying peacefully in his bed. Um, and there you go, as Paul Harvey would say, that's the rest of the story. All right. Um, so does anyone have any Bruno or Galileo questions? Or I guess you can go back to Inquisition, questions in general.